It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 832 for the 19th of May, 2023. This week, even if your scanner came with a scanning application, using the scanner will be easier and more productive if you buy a copy of ViewScan. In short circuits, I'll tell you about some of Adobe's new photo suite features soon, but one that stands out above all the others is a game changer called Denoise. Jeffrey Hinton, Google's former chief artificial intelligence scientist, retired abruptly and has been warning us about a time when AI will be smarter than humans. Let's consider that. And 20 years ago, only on the website, in 2003, I was preparing to buy my first digital single-lens reflex camera, and I was excited about its performance and features. Most scanners come with an application to run it, but ViewScan is a better choice. If you have an older scanner that the manufacturer has abandoned, ViewScan might be the only way you get it to work. ViewScan works with more than 7,000 scanners from 42 manufacturers on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. Even better, buy one copy and you can install it on up to four computers with any combination of operating systems and it will work with all of your scanners. There's no need to buy one license for every scanner you own on every computer you own. Compare that to Silverfast, which requires one license per scanner per computer and supports far fewer scanners and works only on Windows and Mac OS computers. Scanner manufacturers abandon scanners. When Microsoft released Windows 2000, Epson didn't release drivers for the expensive scanner I owned. I bought a new Epson scanner, but both Epson and Microsoft abandoned it with Windows 8. Fortunately, I had learned about ViewScan by then, and that scanner is still in use. It's no better for macOS users. In 2019, Apple dropped support for all scanners that had no 64-bit versions of their drivers. As for the manufacturers, perhaps they think that spending time and money to develop drivers for older scanners is less attractive as a business proposition than forcing users to buy new scanners. ViewScan makes it possible for owners to continue using those older devices. It's less likely that scanners will be abandoned now that 64-bit systems are standard, but there is still the cost. Anyone who has more than one computer or more than one scanner will save money with ViewScan. I have that high-end Epson flatbed scanner I mentioned, but there's also a scanner built into an average Canon multifunction printer and a third that scans 35mm films and slides. That would be three licenses just to run all three scanners with my primary Windows computer, Three more licenses if I wanted to use those scanners with the Mac that's also on the desk. But that's not all. ViewScan's capabilities are another reason to select it. 
Those who are new to scanning can use ViewScan's standard mode, which hides all the advanced controls that can improve scans or ruin them, depending on the user's skills. The basic interface shows only the simplest settings and displays on-screen instructions to guide the user. You'll be guaranteed of acceptable scans. After mastering basic mode, move on to standard mode, which opens some additional options to crop, adjust color, and specify the output type. The on-screen operating instructions still appear. Those who want to get the most out of ViewScan will want the professional mode, but approach that with care. On-screen instructions are gone, and the assumption is that the user knows what each setting does. To master professional mode, pick up a copy of the ViewScan Bible and Scanning Negatives and Slides. These are fairly old books from 2011 and 2007, respectively. Some of ViewScan's menus have changed a bit, and references to hardware are dated, but the books themselves cover resolution, file formats, and workflows, and those have not changed. Users can download ViewScan for free and try it for as long as they want. Instead of limiting the time or features in the trial version, it places a watermark on each scan until it's been registered. ViewScan Basic can be used on just one computer and works only with flatbed scanners. Output is limited to JPEG files and it has a very reasonable cost, $25. ViewScan Standard can be installed on four computers and it works with document feeders but not film or slide scanners. It's priced at $50. The professional version at $100 includes support for additional output formats and film scanners. ViewScan has so many settings because the developer, Ed Hamrick, knows that the best quality isn't always the best choice. It's essential to match a scan to the intended use of the output. Two extremes are speed and quality. The fastest scan will be low quality. The most accurate scan will take longer and consume more disk space. Sometimes the best choice will be speed, sometimes the best choice will be accuracy, and most often the best choice will be somewhere between the two extremes. Wherever the best choice is, it should be your choice, not a choice made by or hardwired into the application. For example, if you scan an 8x10 color print using 64-bit scan depth and 4800 samples per inch, you will have a file that approaches 16 gigabytes, and the process of creating it may take an hour, maybe more. If you're scanning a print, the transparency bit isn't needed, so scan using 32-bit depth. Scanning at 4800 samples per inch exceeds the resolution of the photograph so maybe drop the sample setting to 300. Now, instead of a 16 gigabyte file, your output will be around 50 megabytes, and the process will take less than a minute. ViewScan is the application that should have come with your scanner. For more information about how to add it to your scanner, visit Ed Hamrick's website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. 
You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, several new features have been added to Adobe's photography applications. I'll be describing them in a week or two, but one of them stands out so much that I'd like to mention it now. Denoise. Just as grain was the bane of film photographers, noise is the bane of digital photographers. Digital noise comes in two types, luminance and chrominance. As the names imply, luminance is the presence of random white dots. Chrominance is the presence of random color dots. Several factors contribute to increased noise. Small sensors produce more noise than larger sensors. Older sensors are more likely to generate noisy images. And higher ISOs create images with more noise. Fortunately, camera manufacturers have made some progress in taming noise, but Adobe's new denoise function permanently changes the way we deal with noise. Denoise is available in Lightroom, which means you'll also find it in Camera Raw. The feature doesn't yet work with all RAW files, but most RAW files can be converted to DNG if the format's one not compatible with Denoise. Denoise is included as part of the Lightroom interface. When you edit a RAW file with Photoshop, you'll find Denoise in Camera Raw. The process is not compatible with JPEG files, and when you use Denoise, the process will create a new DNG file. The images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website were created using Denoise in Lightroom Classic. A new Denoise button is in the Detail section of Lightroom's menu. Selecting that option displays a dialog box. Initially, it's probably wise just to use the default settings. You'll find checkboxes for Denoise, Raw Details, and Super Resolution. The Raw Details function works with a limited, very limited number of images, and it is intended to improve details. Super Resolution creates a higher resolution version of the image. It's science, not magic. Denoise eliminates a surprising amount of luminance and chrominance noise. In general, you can use only one of the options, although an image that has been processed with raw details can then be processed with denoise. In addition to JPEG images, these functions cannot be used with other file types. A preview window shows before and after views that illustrate what the enhancement will do. The process isn't quick, and as I said, it creates a second copy of the raw file, so you'll want to use Denoise only on select photos. I mentioned that higher ISOs create more noise and that older images generally have more noise, so I tested with an old high ISO image. In digital imaging, eight years is old. I created a picture of a butterfly at the Franklin Park Conservatory in 2015 at ISO 2500. I needed that relatively high ISO because the lens was at its maximum range, 250 millimeters, and I wanted at least one four hundredth of a second at f6.3 because I couldn't use a tripod. Therefore, lots of noise. These days, ISO 2500 is no big deal. Eight years ago, it was. So, an image with lots of noise. 
Adobe's previous noise reduction could have tamed some of it. The denoise function is much, much better. The AI process eliminates the noise while still retaining a surprising amount of detail. In fact, denoise seems to actually increase clarity and detail in addition to eliminating the noise. One slider that's shown as amount controls how strong the denoise function is. Just move it left or right until the magnified section looks right to you. Then press the enhance button and wait for the magic. And yeah, I know I said it's not magic, but scientist and science writer and science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke said this, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I'll go with that. Adobe's Eric Chan says teaching a computer to perform a task may sound complicated, but it's somewhat like teaching a child. With children, it requires structure and examples. For computers, Chan says the structure is called a deep convolutional neural network. That means what happens to a pixel depends on the pixels immediately around it. To understand how to upsample a given pixel, the computer needs some context. Chan says the context comes from an analysis of the surrounding pixels. It's much like how, as humans, seeing how a word is used in a sentence helps us to understand the meaning of the word. After removing the noise, I used more of Adobe's Sensei AI to select the background. I darkened that and shifted the color just a little bit. I also increased both saturation and vibrance a bit on the subject. That's the butterfly, of course. And it's clear that the final image is a big improvement over the original. Every digital photographer's rule should be to get the image right in the camera, or as close to right as possible, and then to use post-processing to make improvements. And this isn't cheating. Photographic greats such as Ansel Adams got the best images they could in their cameras. Then they used sophisticated darkroom techniques to create prints. And one final note about one of the features here, raw details. It is applicable only to Bayer and Xtrans Mosaic raw files. Most people will not be able to use that feature. And Adobe recommends that users apply denoise to images before applying other tools such as AI masks and content aware. Is artificial intelligence as dangerous as some say it is? AI isn't a new concept, neither is the concern. As with most tools, AI can be good or bad. I wrote about artificial intelligence and specifically about ChatGPT in late March, and I thought that it's time to have another go at that in light of Jeffrey Hinton's retirement at age 75 from Google and his efforts to warn people about the potential dangers of AI. Hinton has been referred to as the godfather of AI. For 10 years, starting in 2013, Hinton worked for Google's Brain Project and at the University of Toronto. When Microsoft added artificial intelligence to its Bing web browser, Hinton says Google responded by pushing its own AI research in dangerous directions. Hinton gave an interview to the British Broadcasting Corporation in early May, and you'll see a small segment of that interview on the TechBiter Worldwide website with a link to the full article on the BBC website. 
When the Writers Guild of America went on strike on the 2nd of May against the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, one of the main issues cited was the use of artificial intelligence to write scripts. There are nearly 12,000 screenwriters, and the target of the strike includes traditional entertainment companies, such as Universal and Paramount, but also Netflix, Amazon, and Apple. Like nuclear power that was born following the use of atomic bombs in World War II, AI offers both great promises and great dangers. Moments ago, I described Adobe's AI denoise feature that virtually eliminates digital noise from images. The AI process goes far beyond what could be accomplished using standard processing. In mid-April, I described Adobe's work on a process to eliminate noise from audio recordings. Some Apple phones can sense the main subject in a photo that's used for the lock screen and position information shown on the lock screen so that it appears to go behind the main subject. Adobe offers the free Photoshop camera app, which creates amazing still images and even some short videos for users of certain Android and Apple iPhone models. I'll tell you about that next week. Those features are all on the good side of the equation. But audio AI already makes it possible to create recordings that sound like they were spoken by someone who never said the words. AI videos purport to show people doing things they would never contemplate doing. We're going to see a lot of these fake audio and video recordings in political disinformation because lying has been fully democratized and brought to the desktop where anyone can use the technology at a very minimal cost. I don't make a mistake here. The camera has always lied. Some Civil War pictures were constructed from multiple images from different times and locations. The images may show events that happened, but were never photographed. Some depict events that never even happened. Before digital photography and desktop image editing, photographers used camera positioning and darkroom manipulations to create images that lied. They needed a lot of knowledge and some expensive equipment. The Soviets used primitive methods to remove people from pictures when they were out of favor with Stalin, and also dead, as well as to move their new favorites closer. Today, AI can do that on the desktop. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to some fake Civil War pictures and to some fake military pictures. Check them out. The genie is definitely out of the lamp, and we can only hope that people will use the technology wisely and that those who hear or see fakes will be smart enough to recognize them for what they are. I'm not optimistic about that. But even the misuse of AI to spread lies is only part of what concerns Jeffrey Hinton. People are still smarter than AI, but that probably won't last. Hinton cites GPT-4's ability to record truly gigantic bits of information and then apply some basic reasoning to the information it has. AI can be used to write scripts, hence the concern by the Writers Guild of America members. It can write reports. It can write news stories. With text-to-speech applications, AI could write a script for the president and then create a recording or even a deepfake video. What concerns Hinton the most, though, is what happens when AI becomes smarter than people. Is 2001 a space odyssey in our future? Will we try to shut down an AI system only to find that we 
can't? Stay tuned. Artificial intelligence was all fiction with little science in 2003, but digital photography was beginning to catch on, and serious photographers were looking at digital SLR cameras. Let's consider that in 20 years ago, only on the website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>